Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Herman Melville. Now let's get started with our story about Herman Melville. When he died at age 72 on September 28, 1891, Herman Melville was so obscure that those who even remembered his literary output presumed that he had passed away many decades earlier. Melville's works were out of print. His last novel published more than 30 years before his death. The title of his epic work, Moby Dick, was misspelled in Melville's New York Times obituary, and one of his most respected efforts, Billy Budd, Sailor, had not even been published. But, unlike many ill-fated 19th-century American literary counterparts, Melville came from a privileged background, enjoyed considerable literary success, and socialized with some of the most influential writers of his day. However, he ultimately experienced critical obscurity, financial difficulty, family dysfunction, and tragedy. He spent the last two decades of his professional life as a New York City customs inspector, composing poetry that was met with complete disinterest. It would not be until a critical revival of Melville began in the early 20th century that the author's work would eventually attain universal appreciation and Moby Dick would be reassessed as one of the greatest American novels. Herman Melville was born on August 1, 1819, in New York City. Both of his parents came from wealthy, upper-class backgrounds. Unfortunately, Melville's father, Allen, a merchant and importer of expensive French clothing and textiles, relied heavily on money borrowed from both his parents and his mother-in-law. Eventually destitute, he was forced to flee New York for Albany, staving off bankruptcy with loans from his wife's family. Herman's privileged upbringing ended in January of 1832, when his father abruptly died, leaving debts that exceeded any subsequent inheritance. At age 14, Melville was forced to take a bank job secured by a relative. When his brother, Gansvort, named for his mother's maiden surname, opened up a New York fur and clothing business, Herman was hired as his assistant. But this venture would ultimately fail, struck first by a fire in 1835 and then by the financial panic of 1837 that was lethal to the credit and survival of such small businesses. Melville's mother Maria would move the family to the suburbs of Albany, New York, taking advantage of rural property values and the ability to escape the family's urban economic failure and disgrace. Herman Melville lived with his mother throughout the winter of 1838 and early 1839. He unsuccessfully sought engineering work in the vicinity and ultimately decided out of boredom and economic necessity to sign on to a merchant ship, the St. Lawrence, which sailed between New York and Liverpool. Melville's first encounter with the sea was not immediately compelling. 
He would spend time after returning to New York as a teacher and travel to the Midwest with a friend in an unsuccessful attempt to find steady employment. Having read contemporary accounts of the exploits of sailors aboard whaling ships, in December 1840, Melville traveled with his brother to New Bedford, Massachusetts. He signed on as a crew member aboard the Akushnet, a typical whaling boat of the era. Except for the ship's owners and officers, whaling paid poorly. Conditions were dangerous and personalities were unstable. Perhaps this was why whaling crews openly accepted Native and African Americans. Crew members were compensated with a very small percentage of the revenue that the voyage produced, money that they usually lost through upfront advances and costs for clothing and equipment. Sailors frequently deserted and ultimately joined other ships halfway around the world. Still, the voyages provided marginally employable individuals room and board for years at a time. In July of 1842, and six months into his voyage, Melville and a like-minded shipmate, Toby Green, deserted while the Akushnet was anchored near the island of Nukuhiva in the Marquesas. They hiked into the hilly interior of the island, attempting to hack their way into the vicinity of what they believed to be a friendly tribe of natives. Melville complicated the situation by injuring his leg, and eventually the men became isolated and discouraged. It was agreed that Green would return to Nukuhiva Harbor and seek help, and although Melville would not see his shipmate again for four years, he would eventually make his way back to the harbor and in August 1842 successfully enlist with another Australian whaling ship, the Lucy Ann. Melville would successfully draw upon the details of this month-long adventure for his first book, published in 1845. Melville decided that the Lucienne wasn't for him either, and in October he was imprisoned in Tahiti after participating in a mutiny. Held only briefly, Melville was released and eventually signed on with another whaler, the Charles and Henry, out of Nantucket, that got him as far as Lahaina in present-day Maui. From there, he made his way to Honolulu, an eventual enlistment as an ordinary seaman on board the USS United States. From Honolulu, the ship would eventually make its way back to Boston via South America and the South Seas. Upon his arrival back in the States in October of 1844, Melville would be discharged and would return to his mother's home in upstate New York. Once there, he would regale her, his four sisters, and anyone else who would listen with tales of his previous years at sea. Unanimously, he was encouraged to put his stories into manuscript form, and Melville did just that. His first manuscript entitled Taipee, an account of his time in Nukuhiva. Initially rejected by Harper Brothers as not believable, Melville enlisted the help of his brother Gansvoort, now a well-connected member of the newly elected Polk administration, serving in a diplomatic post in London. Gansvoort Melville quickly placed the book with a British publisher, and then got another prominent American diplomat, Washington Irving, to contact his own publisher, G.P. Putnam, about the manuscript. Putnam became enthusiastic about the work and published it in the U.S. under his Wiley and Putnam imprint. Melville's dedication for his first book was to quote, Lemuel Shaw, Chief Justice of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. This little work is affectionately inscribed by the author, unquote. Although Shaw was a respected longtime friend of the Melville family, the author probably had an ulterior motive for this formality. He had already met the judge's daughter, Elizabeth, and when his first book was greeted with success, the relationship intensified and the couple got engaged. 
Tragically, his brother, who was critical to first getting Melville into print, began to behave erratically before dying in May of 1846. Financially, this development plunged the Melville family into debt as Gansvoort continued the operation of his father's ill-fated dry goods business. Herman Melville attempted to alleviate the situation by following up his first book with a second entitled Umu, a continuation of his narrative about his Polynesian adventures. The book was first published in England based on both the country's greater enthusiasm for literature and a lack of copyright laws in the U.S. that permitted American publishers to publish an author's work without paying advances or royalties. Although Melville's second book received mixed reviews, he was perceived as a member of New York Literary Society. Despite the initial Shaw family misgivings about how their future son-in-law would make a living as a writer, Herman Melville and Elizabeth Shaw were married in Boston in August of 1847. They became permanent residents of New York City, and the writer spent the next few years grinding out a succession of books. Marty, published in March of 1849, was Melville's first completely fictionalized novel, initially a continuation of the type of travelogue that comprised Melville's first two books. The book meanders through a romance and ultimately a political discourse influenced by the revolutionary events in Europe, it was both critically unpopular and a commercial failure, as he had received money from his father-in-law to purchase his share of the New York brownstone that he occupied with his brother's family. Melville was anxious to at least partially pay back his relative. Spurred by this financial need and the arrival of his first child, a son, Malcolm, in early 1849, Melville quickly followed up Marty with two other books. While he was disappointed by the response to his artistically ambitious third effort, Melville played it straight with his next book. Entitled Redburn, it was a return to the type of travelogue that Melville hoped would re-ingratiate himself with the audience for his first two books. The work is a highly romanticized description of Melville's first voyage at sea, undertaken at age 19 aboard the St. Lawrence, the merchant ship that took the author from New York to Liverpool. Written in less than three months, the book did better than Melville's previously disastrous Marty, but only sold a modest 3,300 copies in the U.S. White Jacket took even less time, only eight weeks to produce. Melville used his 14-month stint on board the USS United States to explore injustice, flogging, and military life with a voyage on board a Navy warship as a plot. The title character, a nameless mouthpiece for Melville's mostly negative perspective on the experience. Written in eight weeks, even Melville himself was openly candid about his motivation in composing these two books. In a letter to his father-in-law, he called these works, two jobs which I have done for money, being forced to it as other men are to sawing wood. Sales for White Jacket were as dismal as Redburn, although Melville received reasonable advances for both books. The book may have been a catalyst for the U.S. Congress to abolish the Navy practice of flogging, this the most memorably harrowing scene in the story. However, this punishment was already controversial, and the government was in the midst of debating the possibility of banning this form of discipline when the book appeared. When White Jacket was published in early 1850, Melville was already at work on his next effort. He approached his sixth novel much more deliberately, spending four months in Britain and Europe as a tourist and researcher, attempting to access material that might transform this manuscript into something more than just a fictionalized travelogue. The first tangible mention of Moby Dick is in a letter to Richard Henry Dana, Jr., acclaimed writer of two years before the mast. 
Melville mentions that he is halfway finished with a book about a whaling voyage. This was not particularly a radical plot topic, with whaling naturally providing many of the harrowing elements of 19th century maritime life, including shipwrecks, castaways, death, and destruction. While writing Moby Dick, Melville also began the process of leaving New York City, spending the summer with his family at a comfortable rooming house in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. By September, he again borrowed money from his father-in-law, and in a complicated transaction, purchased a 160-acre farm that he nicknamed Arrowhead. In August of 1850, Melville made the acquaintance of Nathaniel Hawthorne, who was just emerging from the popular success of The Scarlet Letter. Melville composed a very positive review of a collection of Hawthorne's short stories, and the two literary figures began a close relationship. They both shared a similar perspective on the negative aspects of human personality and American society that Hawthorne discussed in The Scarlet Letter and Melville would examine in Moby Dick. Whether it was ambition or the influence of the frequent deep conversations the duo would share late at night while smoking cigars in the study of Hawthorne's nearby Lenox, Massachusetts home, Melville began to completely rewrite Moby Dick, a book he previously proclaimed as half-finished earlier in March. Melville's inspiration for the basic plot of Moby Dick came from the story of the Essex, a whaler that was sunk in the South Pacific in 1820 after a deliberate attack by an abnormally large 85-foot sperm whale. The story of this incident and the subsequent arduous rescue of some of the crew members was well known to anyone who sailed on a whaling boat during this time period. In fact, while a seaman on the whaler Akushnet in 1841, Melville actually met the son of the first mate of the Essex, Owen Chase. This individual, William Henry Chase, was serving on another American whaler sailing in Melville's vicinity, and he even presented Melville with a copy of his father's book about the Essex disaster, indicating that Melville had contemplated a whaling novel for several years. By all accounts, Melville was not particularly pleasant to be around during the composition of Moby Dick, especially after he decided to radically rewrite much of the manuscript. He secluded himself in the second-floor study of his home, his wife and extended family understanding that he was not to be disturbed, and under no circumstances was any family member permitted to enter without knocking first. Writing until late in the afternoon, Melville would emerge only to have a meal and then go to sleep, completely consumed by his work. This despite the pregnancy of his wife who would give birth to Melville's second child, another son, in October of 1850. In his obsession over the manuscript, Melville resembles Captain Ahab, a central character of the novel, who becomes terrifyingly obsessed with capturing the giant whale that will eventually sink Ahab's ship. Melville spent the summer reviewing proofs of his whaling epic, dedicated to his friend Nathaniel Hawthorne, and again to take advantage of more stringent British copyright laws, the book first appeared in London in October 1851, entitled The Whale, and in New York in November with the title Moby Dick. Although Melville's time-consuming creative process and dedication indicated that he had very high hopes for Moby Dick, critics and reviewers were mostly negative, and in some cases scathing, in their perspective on the novel, especially in Britain. There was a basic explanation for this reaction. As was typical during the Victorian era, publishers would heavily edit manuscripts of any material or verbiage considered profane, sexually provocative, or politically volatile. Melville's English publisher, Bentley, not only removed or altered many of the author's original words, over 700 changes in all, 
Editors also completely omitted the epilogue, which explained how the narrator, Ishmael, survived the sinking of a ship when the description in the British narrative detailed how the ship sank, killing the entire crew. Such confusion led to reviews such as this one in the October 1851 London Spectator. This sea novel is a singular medley of naval observation, magazine article writing, satiric reflection upon the conventionalizations of civilized life, and rhapsody run mad. The rhapsody belongs to wordmongering where ideas are the staple, where it takes the shape of narrative or dramatic fiction, it is phantasmal, an attempted description of what is impossible in nature and without probability in art. It repels the reader instead of attracting him. Melville would also be impacted by the practice of American critics to rely heavily on their British counterparts, especially when a book initially appeared in Britain. Reviews like this one appeared in the November 20th Boston Post. We have read nearly one half of this book and are satisfied that the London Athenaeum is right in calling it an ill-compounded mixture of romance and matter-of-fact. This review then concluded with, Mr. Melville has to thank himself only if his horrors and his heroics are flung aside by the general reader, as so much trash belonging to the worst of bedlam literature, since he seems not so much unable to learn as disdainful of learning the craft of an artist. Melville's American publisher, Harper's, most likely as a result of the book's length at over 600 pages, chose to sell it for $1.50, a high price for the time period, and another opportunity for critics to pounce, which they did. While not all of the reviews were uniformly negative, and Nathaniel Hawthorne sent the author a privately positive assessment, the commercial impact of some of the initially strident critiques was to limit sales of Moby Dick to levels that even for Melville were disappointingly low. A total of 2,000 copies of the book were sold in the first months after its release, and by the end of the 19th century, only 4,000 copies of the book had been sold. Melville himself was both puzzled and embittered by Moby Dick's reception. He came to believe that his serious attempt at literature was a mistake and that he would be better served by writing something that was more commercially appealing. To Hawthorne, he wrote of the financial consequences of striving for great art. Try to get a living by the truth and go to the soup societies. But this instinct dissipated as Melville began work on a seventh novel entitled Pierre or the Ambiguities. Pierre is the 19-year-old protagonist, an heir who is disinherited and leads a lonely life as an impoverished, unsuccessful writer who ultimately suffers a dreadful and depressing suicide after murdering his romantic rival. A psychologically driven work that contains parallels to Melville's own disappointing literary career, its dark themes, plot, and weird writing style was even more of a non-commercial departure than Moby Dick. This time, the credits were utterly merciless, the headline in one review literally read, Herman Melville, crazy. Much more ominous from a career perspective was another opinion which contained the assertion that Pierre was the burning out of Melville's volcano. Even today, the angry tone of the book is analyzed to determine the author's state of mind during composition. Whether it was Melville's anger over the reception of Moby Dick or even the state of his possibly physically unsatisfying marriage, Pierre only added to the writer's professional frustration and precarious financial situation. Even during Pierre's composition, Melville's publishers in both the U.S. and Britain were wary of investing up front in any of the writer's forthcoming efforts. In Britain, Richard Bentley initially agreed to publish the book, but declined to offer an advance. Without much leverage, 
Melville asked for 100 pounds and pathetically offered to print the book under a pseudonym if the British publisher thought that would help. Harper's was even more skeptical, offering a simple royalty of 20 cents a copy after previously paying Melville a 50-50 split. Although we actually believed Pierre had great appeal as a romance, especially to middle-class females, the author was mistaken. Any romantic appeal for women would have been diminished by the book's savage perspective on American life and a minimal plot centered on a depressing story and main character. In a country that emphasized a growing, vibrant society, any work that wasn't imbued with this feeling of optimism would be dismissed. And dismissed it was. Melville's combined sales in Britain and the U.S. was 1,500 copies. By the time Melville's profit was determined, he actually owed his publisher money. Pierre was a financial and professional disaster, and the author would have been better served if it was released under a pseudonym. Unfortunately, it wasn't. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Herman Melville. Much of the information for this presentation came from Melville, His World and His Work by Andrew Del Banco, and Herman Melville, From A to Z by Carl Rollison and Lisa Paddock. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.